Good evening, everyone, and thanks so much for this opportunity. I must say, it's a, it's a, I, I always am humbled to have an opportunity to open God's Word. And um, this evening, I want to speak to you about whatever happens, stand firm. Um, Michael spoke so well last week about our, our belonging as citizens in heaven, of heaven. And Paul goes on from there to say, whatever happens, stand firm. And we, it's interesting, he's told the church in Ephesus the same thing. So in Ephesians 6, when he tells um, the church there to take on the full armor of God, he tells them, after you've done all of that, do this, stand firm. And we live in interesting days. I think even prior to COVID, we live in days where there can be challenges and we can be tempted to anxiety. We can be tempted to lack joy. We can be tempted to question our faith. We can be tempted to a number of things. And so this message that Paul has to the church here in Philippi, this was a, a, a Greek city under the rule of Rome, where if you had said Jesus is Lord, you would have been under persecution and the Philippian church would have been under persecution. There's lots of reason for Paul to say to them, stand firm. I want to say to us in this day, there's lots of reason for us to also here stand firm. Even, even as Gabe said here, this couple who yesterday or, t- or today were attacked, we call to stand firm. And uh, Scripture says that those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a promise in Scripture. We're called to stand firm. And so I just want to pray quickly and ask that, Lord, we want to ask tonight, You've not just called us to stand firm, but you've given us some anchors to assist us with that. And I pray tonight as we open your scripture, that by the power of your Holy Spirit working in our hearts, you would let some of those anchors become very real to us, and you would enable us even tonight to stand firm in some areas we've been floundering in, and to feel like tomorrow morning we wake up stronger. Stronger in you, Lord Jesus, stronger in relationship with each other, stronger in our thinking, stronger in our spirits. And we'd say it's because the Spirit of God has spoken to my heart. And so we ask that in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to work. You're going to have to work quickly tonight, okay? So standing firm really matters. Scripture says that those endure to the end will receive a crown of life, and we want to stand firm right to the end. I'm going to touch back on last week, because the important place to start is that in chapter 3, verse 19, Paul compares those who do not know Christ and have their minds set on earthly things with us, who he says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul's first thing of standing firm here, his first anchor is this, is stand firm in your citizenship. Michael touched on that last week. I want to say this. If we are not firmly rooted in this truth, we have nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. You know, once we were separated from God, but Revelations 5 beautifully tells us that Jesus purchased for God from every tribe and people and nation, us, really. So that now, Ephesians 2 says, we are no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's our position. So we can say this, and it it actually gives me joy to say this. It should give us joy. 
this world really isn't our home. I am more a citizen of the kingdom of heaven than I am a citizen of South Africa. And my passport is that my name is lit, written in the Lamb's book of life. So I'll say to you now, where do you really belong? Where do you really belong? We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We must stand firm in that citizenship. And that's Paul's launching place to the rest of the stand firms. And I, we're going to try to get through six other stand firms this evening. The second stand firm is this. It comes out of um, chapter 4 and verses 2 and 3. It's this. Stand firm in the mission of the church. You're going to say, how did you get that out of that, Wayne? And we, we're going to show you. The, 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 the church in Philippi received this letter from Paul. They would have been incredibly excited to receive the letter. They hadn't heard from Paul in a while. There's no WhatsApp messages, Facebook posts, emails. They don't know what's going on. And so when this letter arrived, they would have been excited to hear it. There would have been a news that gone out. Hey, there's a letter from Paul. Let's all gather together at the well or at the mill or wherever. And they would have listened to this letter being read out loud to all of them, which is why Paul addresses it to all the saints who are at Philippi. Okay, and so he's addressing the whole church where in, in chapter two he says, if you, plural, have known the love and comfort of Jesus Christ and the affection of the Holy Spirit, put aside your rivalry. And then he does something interesting for a letter of Paul. He specifically and intentionally addresses two individuals in that group. They're two ladies named Euodia and... I would have said exactly the same. Syntax, syntax, syntax. Okay. These two ladies were having disagreements among themselves. I think they were arguing about who had the worst name. Okay. Sorry if any of you have named your daughter Syntesh, Syntesh. Okay. But, but he, he picks these ladies out. Okay. And he says to them personally in front of everyone else, he begs with them, please, ladies, in the same way as Jesus considered your interests before his own, consider each other's interest before your own. He says, you odia, Jesus died for S. He just called her S because he couldn't pronounce her name either. And then he said, and S, Jesus has redeemed you odia. Please put aside your differences and grow up in God. Now, you might say to me, Wayne, you said this was a corporate letter for the church, but now he's addressing them individually. Which is this? Is this for the church or is it for the individual? Yes. Yes. Paul intentionally lays out a big story for the church to be applied by these ladies because, firstly, if we don't personally apply what the New Testament letters address, the church won't walk in the reality of it. I want to say that again. If we don't personally apply what the New Testament letters address, the church won't walk in the good of that. And secondly here, I want you to get this. Paul's primary objective here isn't about two ladies with funny names that had an issue with each other. Paul's objective here is about the mission of the church. And he's making a call for individual Christ-likeness in these ladies for the corporate mission of the church. That's what he's doing. And we have to get this, brothers and sisters. The church will not live out its mission to point man to the truth of Jesus if we don't individually live this out. 
And it's important enough that in verse 3, Paul goes on to say, if others have to help you ladies to get this right, because this really matters, then that's what we're going to do. So I want to ask you a question tonight. What must you personally deal with and mature in and put to death in your life to empower the mission of the church? What must you put to death in your life so that the mission of the church is empowered? I want to say, let's put it right, guys. Let's not let anything big or small stop us being actively involved in the mission of the church. The devil would absolutely love for that to happen. Paul doesn't want that, not for these two ladies, not for us. And so he says, let's stand firm in the mission of the church. Thirdly, stand firm in your joy. You know, Paul, Paul mentions this word joy or rejoice 16 times in this short letter. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. It's, got, it's typical of the Psalms. He could have quoted it from any Psalm. But actually for Paul, this is typical of true Christian life. And I think we've, we've become in the church, in the Western church, in, the, in, in, in easy church life, we've become so used to propping our lives up with other pleasures that this instruction from Paul to rejoice always can seem a little bit like that prayer for world peace. You know, it's a nice peace, but it's not really going to happen. But Paul goes on, I'm not, I'm not going to steal from next week, verses 10 to 13, in some of the richest passages of Scripture, Paul goes on to say, I have learned the secret of being content in every situation. And what's more, he doesn't see this as something that's just for him. He sets this up as something that all of us should reach for. Rejoice always, and again I say rejoice. Now you might say, how? How could Paul say that? How could Paul say he'd learned the secret of being content in every situation? This is how. Paul got Jesus. That's it, Paul got Jesus. Paul got the wonder of God. Paul got the thrill of anticipating one day seeing Jesus as he really is with no limitations. Paul got that. It's called revelation. That's what it's called. It's called revelation. And it's why Paul tells the church in Ephesus, I keep praying for you that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation that you would know him. That's why Paul's got that at his heart. Because when God is revealed to us through his son Jesus by the Holy Spirit, it changes everything. And one of the evidences is joy. In John 15, 11, Jesus says, I've spoken these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He goes on in, in chapter 16, verse 22 to say, I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. No one. This is a promise. This is a promise from Jesus, guys. Stand firm. It's a promise of Jesus. No one will take this joy from you. And Paul here is calling the Philippian church. If you've got any sense of this, brothers and sisters, then rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. You know, if we, if we look at the book of Acts, if we look at all of the New Testament letters, they are overflowing with a very real sense of experiencing life in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And that is precisely what makes this thing about rejoicing always not just a fairy tale. 
Guys, I just want to say this. Let's lay this to bed. This thing in Paul's life of I've learned the secret of being content in every situation. It is not just for Paul. It's for the church of Jesus Christ that are full of the Spirit of God. And even now, I just want to appeal to you, even now as you're sitting there, you can close your eyes and you can say, Holy Spirit of God, fill me with the joy of the Lord. Fill me with the joy of the Lord. Give us a taste of heaven. Give us a taste of Jesus. Psalm 34 verse 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Lord God, that we would taste and see and know so that we could also say we've stood firm in this joy that isn't shaken by anything. We ask it of you, Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is Christianity. Galatians 5.22 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. A life-changing knowledge of Jesus and being filled with the Spirit of Christ to the glory of God and for our joy is Christianity. I want to say that again. It's a, maybe a simplistic definition of what Christianity is. It's a life-changing knowledge of Jesus and being filled with the Spirit of Christ to the glory of God for our joy. And uh, um, I think it was uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones who said, the most distinctive mark of the Christian must be joy. And so we need to be reminded of this to stand firm in our joy. Fourthly, and this might surprise you, Paul goes, and they're all linked. These things are all linked. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, is verse 5. So fourthly, stand firm in being reasonable. Stand firm in being reasonable. There's a call to the church brothers and sisters, to be reasonable in all areas of our lives. But in particular, this is about how we treat people and how we are with each other. Be reason- let your reasonableness be known to people. Be generous in your expectations of people. Be fair with each other. Be sensible. Give people the benefit of the doubt. Don't react extremely. Don't be quarrelsome. Be careful. Be slow to judge. Do you know that the grace of God is like a shock absorber so that when you hit the bumps of someone else being unreasonable with you, you try your hardest to understand them and love them and make it easier for them. This is part of being reasonable as the church of Jesus Christ. Part of being reasonable is to develop the wisdom and the love and the character maturity to let some things go for the health of God's church. That's being reasonable. And let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The NRV says, let your gentleness be known to everyone. It's interesting that in the, in the Hellenistic teaching, they only ascribe gentleness to God. Paul's doing something intentional here. In a Greek city that only ascribe gentleness to God, he's saying to the church, let your gentleness be known to everyone. Guys, this is about not letting your emotions control you. Don't be so touchy. Don't be so sensitive. That's how practical this is. Standing firm in being reasonable includes not being easily offended. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. This is so helpful. He says in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. We are encouraged to look to the Lord. But in verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. We are encouraged to look like the Lord. 
And as we do that, we demonstrate to the world what life can be like with Jesus. Do you see this? There's a link here. Don't forget the mission of the church. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. There's a link here. Well, as you're being reasonable to everyone, there's a mission happening. And I thought about this. You know, actually, this is when we become unreasonable. We become unreasonable when the things we take joy in are undermined. So the more we find our joy in Jesus, the more we'll be reasonable because joy in Jesus isn't undermined. Then Paul, how are we doing for time, Gabe? Sorry, uh, how many minutes? Ten. Okay. Then Paul gives us a little key about how to help us with this, okay? I love Paul. He's, he's never, it's never just doctrine or application. It's doctrine and application mixed in with each other. And so he says here in, in verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And that's your key here. This is how we are helped in being reasonable. Often I'm unreasonable. My wife is watching this at home now. I was thinking, sure, he's quite unreasonable sometimes to be saying that, okay? This, this is the key, okay, to help us be reasonable. The Lord is at hand. And there are two things here. Paul's, Paul's intentionally doing it. Firstly, the way we can be reasonable is that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Lord is at hand. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit. But secondly, and I think this is quite powerful, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Why? Because Jesus is coming back soon. The Lord is at hand. What he's saying is this. On that day when we see Jesus as he really is and we enter into our rest and we enter into an eternity of receiving things that we never deserved, we will then not be bothered about fighting for 20 years for things that we think we deserve. So let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Guys, being reasonable is vital to Christian character and it's vital to the health and the witness of the church. So let's stand firm in being reasonable. Fifthly, stand firm in the peace of God. Do you see? It's, it's all connected, okay? Don't expect peace in your life if you live unreasonably with each other, okay? There's clear connections here. And so Paul says in verse 6, Do not be anxious about in everything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I'd say, don't, don't you want that? Don't you want a peace of God that passes all understanding, not just to have it, but for it to guard your heart and your mind? And this doesn't mean, don't be anxious about anything. It doesn't mean that we don't have concerns. It doesn't mean that. What it means is, don't let those things rule you. You know, um, our fear and our faith fight for the same ground like weeds and grass do. And if you let grass get thick and strong, the weeds can't grow. But when you stop that fight, the weeds eventually take over. This, this don't be anxious about anything is don't let your concerns grow into anxiety. 
Because as they win the ground, they will, you see, there's a link. Stand firm in your joy. Stand firm in the peace. Don't be anxious. When you let anxiety start to rule, you lose your joy and it destroys your witness. So don't be anxious about anything. So what's the answer? What's the remedy? Well, you know, you've heard it say, well, oh, don't worry. It will probably never happen. No, that that actually isn't a great call not to worry. It'll probably never happen. No, this is is the reason that, that Peter gives, 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your anxieties onto him because he cares for you. That's so much better than, no, don't worry about it because it will probably never happen. No, cast your anxieties onto him because he cares for you. Let your requests be made known to God. And then Paul tells us how to make those requests. Okay? He says, in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So firstly, in everything. What that means is we shouldn't just wait until we can't cope before we take things to God. We shouldn't take only the things that we worry about to God. No, Paul says in everything, in everything by prayer and supplication. Do you know what supplication means? Supplication means to plead again and again. So what Paul's saying is one of the days, ways we deal with anxiety is to take everything to God and to do that again and again and again. But I want to focus on the second part over here, which I think is somewhat overlooked. This thing about with thanksgiving. I was reminded when I was looking at this, I, I, couldn't, I didn't look up the psalm. I can't remember which one it is. But there's a psalm that says, I will enter his gates, I will enter his courts with thanksgiving in my heart. And I think there's, I think there's a key to that. I want to say, let's start when you approach God by parking your need for a while and thanking him. And I want to say this, that over, over the years of, of being a Christian, I don't know whether it was first that I thought about this and did this, but I've developed a habit that I, I probably can say that I just about never pray without firstly thanking God, just about never. I read something very interesting the other day. They did a study on gratitude at Berkeley University. I think it's a university in California. They took 300 people who were struggling with depression, on medication for depression, and in counseling, and they split them into three groups, 100, 100, 100. They said to the one group, you're going to take your medication, and every week you're going to write down what your feelings are and what your struggles are. They said to the second group, you're just going to take your medication. And they said to the third group, you're going to take your medication, and every week you're going to write a letter of thanks to someone. This is a secular study. What they found is after four and 12 weeks without any shadow of a doubt, the 100 people that wrote letter of thanks, even if they didn't give the letter of thanks, only 30% of them gave it, were definitely happier and feeling better than those that didn't. Guys, God has made us with thanks in our hearts that when we express it, it does something in us. We wired that way. This is a secular study proving how God has wired us. And then Paul says, don't be anxious in anything, in everything, with prayer and supplication. Submit your prayers to God with thanksgiving. I want to say, guys, it's not just our cars and our food and jobs we've got to be thankful for. It looks like this. We come to God. We say, God, you're amazing. You're amazing. This God who should snuff me out like that, that spoke light out of darkness. 
Hebrews 4 says, I can approach the throne of grace with confidence, with great confidence. I shouldn't be allowed to do it. This is amazing. As we start to thank him like that, and then after that, pray about those things that are concerns. Do you know what we find? We find the peace of God is coming. Just amazingly, the peace of God is coming. And the peace of God is amazingly guarding our hearts and minds. Now, I want you to get this. Paul says that your hearts and minds will be guarded by the peace of God that is beyond understanding. Do you know what that means? It means the difficult situation you were experiencing hasn't been taken away. Because if it had been taken away, your peace would be with understanding. It's beyond understanding because it's still there, but you have peace. You've got the peace of God. So I want us to get that. Sometimes the things we struggle with aren't going to be taken away. But Paul is saying this, stand firm in the fact that you're a citizen of heaven. Stand firm in the mission of, of, of the church. Stand firm in your joy. Stand firm in your peace. Stand firm in these things, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and mind, even though circumstances might not be taken away from you. Right, sixthly, and we're going to finish up quickly now. Paul links this to standing firm in your thinking. Is you go back afterwards, like Wayne said, go afterwards and look at it and read the process. It's all, look, stand firm in your thinking. Finally, brothers, so we've gone through these things. Paul then says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, he must be thinking of some of these things that he shared. He must be. If there's anything worthy of praise, think of these things. I'd say for two reasons. Why? One, because it's fitting for people who have been rescued by a Savior to think like this. That's firstly. And secondly, because it's wise to intentionally direct our thoughts in helpful directions. And this is so important to stand firm in our thinking because finally, finally, what we think directs how we live. And so Paul moves from what you hear and what you learn and what you think and what you do to standing firm in your practice. He says, what you've learned, what you've received, what you've heard, what you've seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I want to say this, brothers and sisters, as believers in Jesus Christ, by faith and grace, we've got a whole new life. And the way that we avoid anxiety and walk in God's peace is to begin to do what pleases God. We are absolutely saved through faith. There's no doubt about it. But if you want the fullness of the gospel, if you want the blessings of the gospel, if you want the promises of the gospel, you must practice the principles. It's obvious. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you all. Guys, I want to say we were not at peace with God. We were separated from Him. But Jesus has dealt with our sin so that we could live in peace again. At peace with God, at peace with ourselves, at peace with each other. When we are thankful for that and prayerful in it, the peace of God will be with us. And when we act it out, the God of peace will be with us. Notice Paul does a different thing. On the one hand, he says, verse 7, the peace of God is with you. In verse 9, he says, the God of peace is with you. It's a double package. Do you want that? 
If you want that, I want that. Put your hand on your heart tonight. Say, I want it, Lord God. I want the peace that goes beyond understanding. I want the joy that lasts even outside of challenging circumstances. I want to be put back on a path again in the mission of Jesus Christ and our church reaching this dark nation. Use me, oh God. Use me. So here I am, Lord God. Thank you that you've met my need in Jesus Christ. And I pray you make that real again to us tonight so that we would be those that stand firm in our citizenship, stand firm in the mission, stand firm in joy, stand firm in being reasonable with others so that we would be a witness, stand firm in peace, stand firm in joy, stand firm in our thinking and in our doing. We ask it all in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.